0: At the beginning of the day, in a Tecumseh school, you hear students say the Pledge of Allegiance, and then right after that, they say another pledge. This is how it went when my kids were in elementary school. They'd say, today is a new day. I am the best student I can be. I do my best schoolwork. I respect others. I play fairly. I am proud of all I do and say. And given that this was done at the beginning of the day... The goal was that they would actually do that. That was at least what the administration and teachers were hoping. And that was effective enough in the sense that my kids all remember this. And my wife remembers this. She's actually the one that told me what it was. So, I mean, they they repeat it over and over again. Sometimes you need something that orients you. Maybe it's a pledge, an oath. If you're part of a club, you might do the same thing. You might remember a club in the series Our Gang. Better known as the Little Rascals. They had a little club. And uh, you might remember that club. It was called the He-Man Woman Haters Club. Ladies, I'm sorry. I know that that's not a good name for a club. It's, it's basically the 1930s and, and 20s version of the Girls Are Icky Club. But they would, these, these elementary age members of the club, they would say the following. They would say, We, the He-Man Woman Haters Club, promise not to fall for this Valentine business because girls are the bunk. Now, one of the members of the club, Alfalfa, he's, he's there dutifully repeating his leader Spanky's words, and he's, he's saying it. But right as soon as they finish the last word, in walks Darla. And she walks by, she's whistling a tune, and she's carrying a picnic basket. And she goes over, not very far away, and she sets up that picnic. And now, Spanky, he is, he's trying to, to redirect their attention. He says, come on, fellas, let's, let's eat. But Alfalfa's transfixed at this point. He's just staring at, who has set up this picnic and laid out two plates. And he watches as she winks at him and signals for him to come over with her index finger. And at this point, you see Alfalfa, and he's, he's physically, you can see his heart beating. You know, just beating out of his chest. And so... He responds to all this by looking to his, his compatriots there and saying, I'll see you fellas later. He walks off and goes to be with Darla. So an oath may not be enough to ensure your loyalty to a group. But as, as we are as humans, you know, we, we need reminders like pledges to help us. See, we're not computers. We're not robots that you can just program once and we're going to just continue in whatever commitments we've made. We live and we experience life through a series of experiences, and those experiences influence us. So even even when we commit to something, we need to continually not only remind ourselves of that commitment, but commit ourselves continually to that, reaffirm our commitment. But Alfalfa illustrates something. It illustrates that there can be some very powerful things in life, some things that are even more powerful than our commitment. You know, for Alfalfa, you know, his desire, his, his attraction naturally to Darla was more powerful than his commitment to his little club. So there are things in life that are, that are powerful, which means that we, we need to understand more about what's going on in our hearts, what's going on in, in our lives, so that whatever it is that, that can ensure our continued commitment, that we're, we're doing those things. So we think about our commitment to Christ. First of all, we have to remember how we came to that commitment in the first place. The Bible says that before we repented and believed, we were dead in our sin. That we needed the Holy Spirit to do a work in our hearts, our dead hearts, before we would respond by turning and trusting in Christ. But even after that work of regeneration— The Bible describes something continuing in us. Peter says that there are sinful desires that wage war against our soul. Now, we also know, Paul says, the beginning of Philippians, he says that the one who began this good work in us will complete it at the day of Christ Jesus. But how do we know that there's a work in us? The proof that we see in, in this work is through our perseverance. And so Jesus and his apostles said, we must persevere, we must continue in this faith. But the problem is, if we're not the ones who initiated this grace in our life, how can we persevere in it? We need him to continue to do a work in us so that we continue to be committed to this. So how does God empower Genuine disciples to persevere. He does that a number of ways. He's doing it. He's empowering us to do that. But he's, first of all, given us his spirit as a seal of his promise to be our God and for us to be his people. And he also, the spirit himself, is at work in us so that as we work out our salvation in our lives, the spirit is the one that's causing us to want to do that and to actually do it the Spirit works with his word. To this word that he's inspired. To equip us for that work. For service to Christ. And Jesus established local churches. Where pastors take the word. They use it by the Spirit's enablement. To then equip the saints. For the work of ministry. And then that means that we as as a congregation. As a whole. This church family. We take the gifts that the Spirit has given us. And we use them. To help each other become more and more like Christ. So you can understand why the local church is at the center of Jesus' disciple-making mission. It's a local church where we baptize disciples and teach them. And we saw that last week. Now, baptism is another, it's another way. It's a second way of looking at how Jesus confirms our commitment. How we confirm, rather, our commitment to Jesus. So, last week we, we saw how the gospel is portrayed in baptism. You could see what's happened to this person, these individuals that were baptized. They demonstrate, they, they have a picture of what's happened to them. They died with Christ and they were raised with Christ. That's what defines our lives now. That's what makes us Jesus followers. We died with Christ so that our sins have been paid for, and we, we have been risen with Christ, raised with Christ, so that we have these new lives. And so baptism is, is a way for us to—God gra- has given us graciously this, this act that we can publicly confirm our faith, publicly demonstrate this is what we believe— and in that way, we are making a commitment to Christ, not the first one that we've made, but we are continuing to affirm that commitment that we've made to Christ in this physical way, an outward way that points to our inward faith. So baptism allows us to portray our faith in Christ, our commitment to him. Baptisms, though, they're only experienced once in a believer's life, right? They're, they're only supposed to be at the beginning of that discipleship following Jesus. So Jesus gave us another way for us to experience the gospel in a kind of physical sense, but to confirm our commitment to Jesus. He gave us the Lord's Supper. So that's what we're going to look at today. The institution of the Lord's Supper found in Matthew 26 and verses 17 through 30. You can turn there if you haven't already. what we're going to see in this passage are are two major actions that Jesus calls his disciples to do in light of this this Lord's Supper. We're called to examine ourselves and remember Christ. And so it's through this repeated, continual experience of the Lord's Supper, along with the Holy Spirit, along with other things that, that God is doing, the Word, his church, that we are enabled to persevere by his grace. So the first half of this section focuses on the betrayal of Judas. It's leading up, it's it's setting up this this Passover meal. But as it does that, it, it shows us that we need to examine ourselves. That's what we'll see in this first section. So look at verse 17. It says, Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? So you see actually two events mentioned here. You have the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover. So historically, these are two events. And both of them point to the birth of the nation of Israel. The beginning of their being, the people of God. That's what this pointed to, the redemption. So at the first Passover, the people of Israel were taken away. They were redeemed out of their slavery in Egypt. You remember the story. Moses, he is sent by the Lord to Pharaoh to tell him, let my people go worship me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh refused. And so there are nine plagues that are meant to demonstrate God's power, but also to encourage Pharaoh to say, you can go. And he refuses after all nine of those plagues. So there is a 10th plague. And that plague involves the death of the firstborn, where every male, whether, every firstborn male, whether human or animal, would be killed except for those among God's people who listened to what God instructed them to do with the Passover. So the Lord instructed his people to take a lamb, to sacrifice that lamb, shed its blood, to take the blood then and put it over the the doorposts. And then what was gonna happen, the Lord was gonna send what he describes as the destroyer throughout Egypt. But at those places where the door had the blood covering the doorframe, the Lord would pass over it. Not in the sense of just leaving it, but in the sense of hovering over it. He would protect that house from the destroyer on the basis of that blood. So that it would not be able to kill their firstborn. And it was through that event that God redeemed his people. Redeemed them from their slavery. And he wanted his people to remember that. To understand that defining moment. This is when you were redeemed. This is when you were taken away from Egypt redeemed from your slavery and so he commanded them to commemorate that with this event known as Passover and then also the feast of uh, the 7-day feast of unleavened bread that followed that it was called unleavened bread because during the Passover they did not have time to wait for their dough to rise they just had to make make things quickly because they were going to be leaving quickly and so they had unleavened bread so one of the ways to commemorate that was to remove all the leaven from your house And you would only have unleavened bread that week. So that's what they would do. They would only eat unleavened bread at that time. Now the requirements for the Passover were a little bit more elaborate than that. Um, They involved getting things like bitter herbs and, and actually taking a lamb and slaughtering that lamb and then eating it with your family. By this time, in the first century, people started to refer to this festival of unleavened bread, and they also meant the Passover. They, they would include both of them, even though technically the Passover happened first and then the feast. So they just would lump it all together. And eventually they would consider this the first day. There was a day before all of that, before the Passover, which was a day of preparation where they were getting ready to it, and they would consider that the actual first day, even though historically, biblically, it wasn't the first day of the feast. They would consider it the first day of the feast of unleavened bread. So, that explains why the disciples are just now coming, you know, it's it's like the Passover's right on them, but they just now come up and they say, where do you want us to prepare for this? Just like Christmas Eve, for many families, is the beginning of the Christmas celebration. The Eve of the Feast of Unleavened Bread is the beginning by preparing for it. So, what's interesting is how Jesus responds to the disciples when they ask this question. He gives some vague instructions, He actually uses a rare pronoun. It's only found once in the New Testament. It's a pronoun that you use it when either you don't know the person's name or you don't want to divulge it. So he says, you're going to go to so-and-so's house. And in the other synoptics, they say how they were going to identify him. And then he gives this kind of cryptic message that they're going to tell him. The teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. Now, in Matthew... Matthew tells a story a certain way, and the genuine followers of Jesus don't use the term teacher. He never has that on their lips. They always say, Lord. So this seems to be a hint for Matthew that this individual was not a disciple, and what he seems to be describing is this pre-arranged code that would then bring about a pre-arranged plan. So why all the secrecy? That's what he appears to be doing. I think Matthew goes on to explain in verse 19. He describes, first of all, starting in verse 19, he describes the disciples' obedience. Mark and Luke tell us it was only two of the disciples. It was John and Peter. And these are two of the inner circle. Only they are allowed to go do this. And so, in verse 20, it starts to describe the event. Passover was eaten late in the evening. And so, when it was time, they reclined at table. That's not what they did all the time, but they did that at certain special meals. And in verse 21, it says, and as they were eating, he said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. So up to then, Jesus had kept the information for this Passover a secret so that Judas could not prematurely betray him. Now, they didn't know that, but that's what seems to be the case. And so now these disciples, they understood what Jesus was saying. Someone in their midst was going to betray him. Someone was going to act treacherously. Somebody's close to them and, and very rightly they they recognize Jesus that, you know, they knew Jesus was able to understand the future, know the future, tell them the future. And so they were rightly very sorrowful, it says. But notice what they do. It says they begin to say one after another, is it I, Lord? Notice they didn't just automatically turn and say, it's Judas. It, they didn't, they, they actually asked these questions as though, was he talking about them? And actually, the form of this question expects a negative. It could be translated like it is in other translations. Surely not I, Lord. But they, they still needed confirmation from Jesus. And they still asked in this question. They still held out the possibility that he was talking about them. That they were capable of betraying him. So, and Jesus doesn't lead... lead Leave them off the hook immediately. His answer actually doesn't narrow it down. Just intensifies the problem. He says in verse 23, he he answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. Understand that's every single one of them. Now there are more statements made in some of the synoptics, but none of the disciples at this point Understand Jesus to be narrowing anything down. What Jesus is doing is intensifying just how bad this is. This is somebody who has, has experienced his hospitality. Somebody who has experienced his life and ministry so up close that he calls him a friend. That's who's going to betray him. So it really is a terrible thing that he's describing here. But it's not a surprise. You I mean, notice Jesus knows it's going to happen. Not only that, Jesus says in verse 24, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. He's referencing scripture. He's saying this, this was foretold. This is in the Bible. It's in the Old Testament. He may have been re- referring to the way that the Messiah was going to experience, live out the experience of David. David says in Psalm 41, nine of himself, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has list, lifted his heel against me. And we don't know exactly what scripture he's talking about, but the point is, this was always going to happen. It's part of the predetermined plan of God. It was recorded in his word. But that does not mean that it isn't really the betrayer's fault. Jesus is not presenting some deterministic sense that, well, this is just going to happen. There's nothing you can do about it. God's not forcing the betrayer to betray Jesus. He's not forcing him to do something he doesn't want to do. And Jesus highlights that with what he says next. He goes on to say, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. The one who betrays Jesus is entirely, completely responsible for what he does. He would do it of his own free will. And the punishment would be so severe that Jesus says it would have been better for him not to have been born. So he was going to carry out God's plan. Because he was also carrying out his own personal plan. And he would pay horribly for it. So this really is a gracious warning to Judas. Tell him what he is doing. And Judas seems to try to fit in with everybody by saying the same thing. But notice how Matthew records it. He says, is it I, Rabbi? Jesus responded, you have said so. Basically, he is saying, possibly somewhat cryptically, you, you yourself have said it. It's just as you've said. But again, Matthew has recorded this in a particular way. Just to understand, by the way that Matthew records things, it's not as though the disciples never called Jesus teacher. That's not what I'm saying before. Earlier, it's not as though they never called him rabbi. The point is, Matthew doesn't record that. His, he's focusing, he's trying to differentiate between those that are truly his disciple and those who are not. So, notice, none of the disciples, when, when Judas says rabbi, they don't say, it's Judas. They, they don't take that as a tell because they likely use the term. But Matthew records it to, to help us see very clearly that even though Judas professed to be a follower of Jesus, he was not a genuine follower of Jesus. He was an unbeliever. So think about that. I mean, this is a person who had considerable time with Jesus. He walked with him and talked with him and not like we try to sing sometimes as we have had some existential experience. He really was there. He had this intimate friendship with Jesus in real life. Got to see him personally. He was exposed to the truth more than anyone else has ever been. He ate he drank he slept he traveled with the truth itself and he was really an unbeliever even though only Jesus knew it so do not think that you can go to church or you can read good Christian books or you you can listen to solid preaching and that means that you are a loyal follower of Jesus it's not enough to just be present in the truth. The truth has to be in you. So if Judas can betray, betray Jesus, Judas with his experience can do that, we should not take it for granted that we remain loyal to Jesus. As as Donald Hagner puts it, if, if the 12, those who had known Jesus so intimately, who had accompanied him throughout his ministry, were prompted to ask the question of their loyalty to Jesus, how much more properly may Christians who have had that privilege occasionally ask that question? So when we come to the Lord's Supper, we're encouraged by Paul to examine ourselves, he says, so that we don't eat or drink the cup Of the Lord, eat the bread or drink the cup of the Lord in in an unworthy manner. So, if someone is an unbeliever or they're a believer who's not turning from a sin, they're not recognizing their need to repent. If they eat and drink the Lord's Supper, they eat and drink judgment on themselves. So, it is good and right for us to examine ourselves when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We should consider are we repenting of our sin? Are we turning? Are we denying ourselves? Is there something that we're not denying ourselves that we say is more important than Jesus? How do we respond in that moment? We repent. We repent immediately, quickly. It is a serious thing to consider Jesus so insignificant in your life that you can just continue with your plans. So don't waste any time turning from your sin. At this point, we come to the Lord's Supper itself in verses 26 through 30. And the, the major action we're encouraged to do as we experience the Lord's Supper is to remember Christ. So verses 26 through 30 describe this Passover Jesus has hosted here for his disciples. Now, by the time the first centuries rolled around, there was a specific order to the Passover, but we're we're not entirely sure what that order was. We don't have any firsthand witnesses to the first century. We have things after that, after the destruction of the temple, which likely had some impact on the Passover ceremony. But they do think, in all likelihood, this was uh, something that was divided into four parts, And that those four parts were focused on promises in Exodus 6 and verses 6 through 7, which say, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. So what we need to recognize is when they celebrated this event, it was a perpetual reminder of God's redemption of his people. So by this ceremony, Israel's directed to remember how God had powerfully rescued them, how he had redeemed them, how he protected them from the plague by that blood. He had done it. They were delivered from Egypt. They became his people. Now understand, the ceremony that they they would continue to do after that was not the redemption. The redemption had already taken place. The ceremony that they did made them no more redeemed after it than they were before it. Because the redemption occurred in Egypt historically. They were the redeemed people of God. And they were remembering that. Remembering what he had done for them. So this was merely the memorialization of this event. So they never forget what God had done for them. How they belonged to God. But something was happening here in this moment. Something even more significant than that redemption. God had promised that one day he would make a new covenant with his people. That would be ratified. And when it was, it would radically change his people. They'd be reconstituted. Listen to what Jeremiah prophesied in jeremiah 31 verses 31 through 34 behold the days are coming declares the lord when i will make a new covenant with the house of israel and the house of judah not like the covenant that i made with their fathers on the day when i took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of egypt my covenant that they broke though i was their husband declares the lord For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor, and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Jesus had come to put this new covenant into effect. He's the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. By his death, he was going to mediate this new covenant. He was going to establish a greater redemption than they experienced in Egypt. And because of that, Jesus takes this Passover ceremony and he changes it into what we now refer to as the Lord's Supper. So listen to verses 26 through 29 of Matthew 26. It says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. It was during the the Passover meal, and Jesus takes this loaf of unleavened bread. He gives a blessing, which is also it's it's praise to God, but it's also thank giving thanks to the Lord, which is why the second verb that's that's in here is translated uh, when he had given thanks. And he could have used a traditional blessing from this Passover ceremony. One of them like this. that says, blessed are you, O Lord our God, king of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. It's a prayer that praises God and at the same time thanks God for the bread. And then after the prayer, he took this one loaf and he broke it into 13 pieces. He passed it around to his disciples. And then he told them, take, eat, this is my body. Now it is clear that when Jesus said this, his human body was standing before them. His human body has always and only been found in one location. The mystery is that Jesus is both God and human. His divinity, his divine nature is omnipresent, but his human nature is only found in one location. And after the resurrection, his human nature is found in only one location. It is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. So none of his disciples believed in any way that they were eating Jesus' actual body when they ate the bread. And given the fact What Jesus will say about the cup, that he will not drink it again, it means that he is participating in this meal. He is drinking the cup. He is eating the bread. Jesus is not eating his own flesh in any way. He is simply doing what the Passover had done. He's taking that ceremony and using it so that his followers, the reconstituted people of God under the new covenant, they could remember their redemption in a meaningful way. This redemption that was going to take place through the substitutionary death of Christ. His body was going to be broken to take the wrath of God on himself for them. Jesus was going to be the means that protected his people from God's wrath. Just as God had done all the way back in Egypt. So as they ate the bread, they were to do it, as Luke says, in remembrance of him. Then he took one cup, one cup, and gave thanks. Greek word for giving thanks here is eucharistasis, which is very, very similar to, it's related to the word that we know as eucharist. So, likely again, as he gives this blessing, as he gives his thanks, it was like they did in the, the Jewish prayers at Passover. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Then he passed around this cup for them to share. And he explains what he's doing. He says, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Again, there's not a Jewish man in the room who would have understood Jesus to mean... That he had transferred his physical presence to the wine. He did not drink his blood, his own blood, in any real or mystical sense. And neither did his disciples. The wine was simply wine. But it was meant to direct their thinking to his blood. Blood is something that signifies a violent death. And the fact that he describes it as being poured out means that he's describing his death as a sacrifice, just as the sacrificial animal's blood would be poured out at the altar or at the ratification of the Old Covenant. It was poured out on the people. So Jesus reorganized this ceremony, and he focused it on his death. So as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're looking back to what Jesus did. He took the punishment we deserve. His blood sanctified us, releasing us from the debt we owe for our sins. Making us holy to God. That's what we remember at the Lord's Supper. And we do so also looking forward to something. That's what Jesus describes in verse 29. He says he's going to refrain from drinking this fruit of the vine until he's celebrating the complete kingdom of his father, the complete arrival of the kingdom of his father with his disciples. That's what his death established for us. Entrance into his father's kingdom. So as we look back in faith on Christ's death, we also look forward in hope to his return. To the consummation of this kingdom that he has initiated, that he's inaugurated by his death and resurrection. And at the same time, we do this together. You you understand what he has done here. He has given one piece of bread to them all. He has shared one cup with them all. This was not an individualistic ceremony where somebody has their own personal moment with Jesus. This is something that they shared together. They recognized that they were all sharing in what Jesus was doing. Maybe they didn't fully recognize it at the time, but that's what Jesus wanted them to do, to recognize that they shared in this together. And so as we look back in faith and forward in hope, we're also looking around in love. We share the benefits of Jesus' death as a family. So just as Jesus ate this meal with his spiritual family, that's what we're doing. We eat and drink with our brothers and sisters, and we remember our commitment to each other. So as they finished, they sang a hymn. It was likely one of the Halal Psalms that they would sing at these Passover ceremonies. They would sing a couple of them early on. These psalms are Psalms 113 to 118. So we began our service with Psalm 114. We're going to end with a portion of Psalm 118. And these psalms are praises to God. So what you see in this in this ceremony is is how much praise is involved after or before each element, there's praise to God for what he's done. And at the end, they conclude with praise. And probably throughout the ceremony, they're praising God. This is an opportunity for us to understand this glorious thing that God has done. That we would admire, that we would recognize it, see it, admire it, admire him. Praise him verbally, but then want to imitate him through seeing what he's done through the gospel, through Jesus. So the Lord's Supper encourages us to glory in the Father and to live for that glory. But if that's the case, then why why has this ceremony created such controversy in the church? And why, why has it been such a point of disagreement Well, let's just think a little bit about some church history here. When Jesus first did this, again, he, he did this with Jewish men who understood the Passover ceremony and what it was all about. But the centuries after that, most of the leaders were not Jewish. And though they may have understood and known the Passover, they did not as well understand the experience of that Passover ceremony. And so what you start to see bleeding in are different ideas. And one of the first things that... They developed in the early church was an understanding of the words of institution. Those are the words, this is my body and this is my blood. And this is early on. So even second century leaders like Justin Martyr or Irenaeus, they spoke about this in ways that made room for people to understand Christ being present physically in some way in the blood, in in the wine and in the bread. But it really wasn't until a 3rd century bishop named Cyprian where you get this, this event being referred to as a sacrifice. And Cyprian also introduces the idea of priests being the ones to actually administer this. So what's happening? You have these old covenant forms creeping into the new covenant practice even though they have been fulfilled in Jesus Jesus is the one, once and for all, sacrifice that atones for our sin. Now, the New Testament does speak of Christians in the sense of sacrifice, but it's always about our lives, living for Christ. There's no passage in the New Testament that suggests that there's an ongoing sacrifice that makes the forgiveness of sins available in the present. So eventually what happens is Rome becomes prominent in the West, and their leaders They established these developments as the official doctrine of what they call the true church. That wasn't true. These were developments of history. They have no scriptural warrant. But that is the way it took place. And they established in this ceremony that the bread and the wine become Jesus' actual body and blood. They used Aristotle's philosophy of the nature of things to say that these things could be transformed into the body, and blood of Jesus, while the actual characteristics do not change at all. Luther actually came back and explained to them how they'd gotten Aristotle wrong, but that's the way they kind of justified it. So, it is true the Catholic Church is something that I'm trying to, to narrow in, understand a little bit better. They would not say that they that Christ's sacrifice on the cross is repeated at every, that's not how they would talk. That's not how they would put it. That it's repeated at every Mass. But they do believe it's a sacrifice. And they would understand it to be this, the once for all sacrifice that Jesus took place 2,000 years ago. But what happens through the Mass is that sacrifice is made available through the sacrifice of the Mass. So the forgiveness of sins is made available through the sacrifice of, of Christ that's tr- they're trying to say it's not a repeated sacrifice, but it is a sacrifice that makes these things available to us in the present. So what happened is the Reformers come along, and, and actually there's earlier than the Reformers, you have John Wycliffe who's saying, that's not the case, this is not right. But by the time of the Reformation, you have people like Luther and Calvin who are saying, this isn't right, what you're describing in terms of the Lord's Supper. So Luther, for example, he recognized that the Lord's Supper was not a sacrifice. But, you know, these guys are coming out of Catholicism that they've been a part of for a long time, and they weren't ready to abandon all of the senses that had developed in the Lord's Supper. And so, Luther still believed, and somehow Jesus was still present in the blood, in the, the, the bread, and the wine. He, he refers to it, or he understands it as, in the sense of the ubiquity of Christ's body, or his, yeah, his body. And the idea... Basically, he's kind of reaching into the omnipresence of Jesus' divine nature and associating it with his human nature. It's actually getting close to making a Trinitarian error. But that's the way that he was kind of trying to to justify this. Now, Calvin understood... That's not okay. That's, that's a problem because he understood Zwingli and others understood. Jesus is only in one place in his human nature. In his divine nature, he is everywhere. But in his human nature, he is only at the right hand of the Father. So they rejected that idea. But still, even Calvin would say there's some sense in which Christ is present with us in the Lord's Supper. He, couldn't, he could not leave that sense. In other words, that Christ is present in a way that he's not otherwise through the Lord's Supper specifically. And he continued to use this terminology of sacrament, which uh, Augustine had defined as an outward sign of an inward grace. So he would describe it, and it continues to be described as a means of grace. So both Luther and Calvin and, and those that belong with them, they did understand that there was something happening in the physicality of this meal, though they would not necessarily identify it in the same way. And so what they understood is that this is how God was extending grace to his people through this meal so that they could persevere. Now, did Jesus intend the Lord's Supper to help us persevere? I would say absolutely, yes, he did. But I would, I would strenuously avoid unbiblical language because of how confusing it can be and because of ways that it's been misinterpreted in the past. The Bible never refers to the Lord's Supper as a means of grace. And the idea of Christ being present through the Lord's Supper does not make any sense historically or biblically. But would I say that Christ is present with us when we do the Lord's Supper? Absolutely. Why? Because he actually told us he would. As we gather together in his name, he would be present. He never says that about the Supper specifically. What this does, there's nothing directly about the the bread, directly about the cup, that changes us. It is by doing this practice that God is changing us. Just as he does so by his spirit, by his word, by the church. These are all means by which he is enabling us to persevere. But it's not the actual contents or the, the ceremony that does it in that sense. So as we turn now to celebrate the Lord's Supper, I just want us to consider what we've learned. First of all, we need to examine ourselves. You need to examine yourself. Consider your commitment to Christ. Are you still denying yourself and following him? Is there something that you're not denying? Confess that. Repent of it. And then take this cup. Take this bread. And as you do that, remember Christ. Remember his death on your behalf. Remember his sacrifice that forgives our sin, that makes us saints, that makes us right with God. As you eat, as you drink, recognize the way that you have personally embraced this truth, that you believe that it's true for you, that Jesus' death is is for you. So remember Christ in faith, but also remember him in hope. Remember that we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's what we're looking forward to, when he will share a meal with us in the kingdom. And then As we do this, we need to remember Christ the way that we love each other. That's another way to remember Christ is to love one another. Remember in chapter 25, he said, as much as you've done it to the least of these my brothers and sisters, we could add, you've done it to me. As we show love to one another, we are remembering Christ. We are serving Christ. So remember Christ in faith, in hope, And in love. Now, what we're about to do is only for believers who have obeyed their Lord and Savior by being identified as a follower of Jesus, by being baptized, and who are part of a local church. That's what Jesus established, what He set up. So, we do ask two things if you're going to participate with us in the Lord's Supper. We ask that you partake only if you are a baptized believer. That you were baptized upon profession of your faith at a church that believes the same gospel that we believe. And only if you are a member of a church where you are held accountable, where you can serve Christ as you serve his people. And if that's not the case, just understand what we've heard from Jesus. We ask you to let that cup, let that bread pass by because we do not want you to eat and drink judgment on yourself. Would the men come forward to administer the Lord's Supper? As we um, do that, I want to mention one thing about our particular bread here. We do have, for those that need it, a gluten-free version. It's in a package. So for those who need that, that is available. While you wait, remember to examine yourself. Remember, Jesus also took one loaf, one cup, so we're doing this together. And because of that, wait until I read scripture before you partake so we can, we can do that together. Join me in a word of prayer. Jesus, we are... So thankful that you gave up your life for us. And we're so thankful that you explained it. And that you instituted this supper for us to remember you. And Spirit, we ask that you would work in our hearts right now. That you would convict our hearts of those things that we are not denying ourselves. That we aren't continuing in. Convict us so that we will turn so that we will repent so that we will be able to enjoy this way that you are growing us in your grace growing us more and more into the image of Christ. Pray that this would truly strengthen us that we would by seeing this word portrayed that we would be strengthened in our perseverance. Amen.